I really do appreciate it. So, Father, we thank you for us being here again tonight, for Wednesday nights, that uh, just to watch you work and the youth uh, kids that come and so many young people. And I know that you want to continue that as we head into a new year. And, Lord, we want to uh, just be ones that are students of your word. We want to look to you, provide for us. We don't have to try to strain or struggle or strive to to make anything happen. Lord, we want to be diligent to be where you want us to be in the work that we do. But Lord, to do it with joy and to know that where you do guide, you provide. And I thank you for your provision this year. I thank you that uh, for the work that you've done through us as a church and in our families and the lives of people. And I, I thank you for all those who are here, just the encouragement and love and what you're doing here at Calvary Chapel. And Lord, I pray that we would impact this community as we head into 2018 with the teaching of the undefiled Word of God and, and the sufficiency of the Word of God. And Lord, to, to know that you will, uh, Lord, just bring those who are hurting. That's what we ask that need to hear the gospel, that are downtrodden, that are, Lord, confused, that are burnt out on the world because the world is not our hope. And may this be a hospital for those who are wondering and questioning. And Lord, a place for even those to heal that perhaps have had bad experiences in, in churches and Lord, are disillusioned with the body of Christ. May they sense your love here. And Lord, may we minister in that way every Sunday, every Wednesday, Bible study that takes place here. Lord, that uh, we would never let go of holding fast to your word, never denying the name of Jesus. And even as the Church of Philadelphia was commended, having a little strength. We're not some big organization. We don't boast in the name Calvary Chapel. We don't boast in anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so, Lord, uh, tonight as we go through this chapter, I pray that you would uh, just help us be sensitive uh, to hearing the things that you want to show us and teach us through your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in chapters 13 through 23 of Isaiah, we're in that section that these proclamations, these burdens are prophesied against the nations that surrounded Israel and Judah. As we started out Isaiah, Isaiah was prophesying against Israel and against Jerusalem and Judah because of their disobedience and because of their false worship and, and, and refusing to turn away from those false gods and turn back to the Lord. And they were very arrogant in, in their day and the prophets coming and addressing them. And the Lord said, I'm going to humble you and I'm going to bring judgment to you because judgment begins in the house of God, but it doesn't end there. And we know that the Lord would use the Assyrians in 722 B.C. to take the ten northern tribes away captive, the house of Israel. And then later on, a little over 100 years later, that in 605 B.C., here comes the Babylonians, the New World Empire, that comes on the scene. And there's three waves of captivities that take place until finally the third time that Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem in 586 B.C., he destroyed the magnificent temple that Solomon had built, destroyed Jerusalem. And they would go into captivity for 70 years. But as the Lord is in this section, 
he would also pronounce judgment on those nations that boasted in themselves, the Assyrians. And one of the major themes that we see here is God says, I'm going to deal with your pride. And the Babylonians certainly, and it starts out in chapter 13 as we continue tonight in chapter 14, this proclamation, this burden against Babylon. Now here's the thing about Babylon. Next to Jerusalem, I believe that Babylon is mentioned more than any other place in scripture. And it is mentioned Babylon from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And last week you recalled that I gave you uh, sets of chapters to write down that you can read about Babylon. That is in Genesis chapters 10 and 11 that we first hear of Babel. You recall that Nimrod was a mighty hunter and uh, he, he was known as being a mighty hunter on the earth and it's not that he was you know, going after wild game. He was a hunter of men. He was beginning to uh, take over uh, people and, and he was a hunter of men and he would rule over Babel and then chapter 11 the tower of Babel you recall that after the flood when Noah and his family came out that the command came to Noah to multiply and fill the earth and what they did is they said we're going to stay here we're going to build this tower up to heaven it was in rebellion to God and we saw that God would then take down the Tower of Babel and spread man upon the earth. And as we look at Babylon, it's more than just an empire that existed 2,600 years ago that was a world-dominating power. But I believe that there's a spiritual dimension to it that we see throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation that as we look at all the rebellion against God, all the false teaching, the mnemonic activity, the worldly system, it all traces back to Babylon, to Babel. And, and that's where we can trace it to, to where all of a sudden this empire comes to rise to power as we learn in the book of Daniel. It was Daniel that was taken off into captivity in that first wave in 605 BC. And then his friends, the choice men of Judah. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 597 BC and takes Ezekiel away captive. And he's there in Babylon. He's prophesying. Daniel's in the, the, the palace of Nebuchadnezzar being used. And then Jeremiah is in Jerusalem warning the leaders don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar and Zedekiah would do that and then all of a sudden Nebuchadnezzar said that's it and he would come in in 586 BC in the third wave of captivity and he would take many away captive at that time destroy Jerusalem many were killed in that destruction of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem and they would of course remain in captivity till 536 BC when the Medes and the Persians came in so when we read these chapters here, again, Isaiah chapters 13 and 14 is the other set of chapters. You can write down Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51. And then the book of Revelation speaks of uh, religious Babylon in chapter 17 being destroyed. And then commercial Babylon in chapter 18 being destroyed as well. So this world is symbolic by Babylon. Babylon sim symbolizes the world system. And, and you and I as Christians, even as John would write in his epistle in, in chapter 2 of 1 John, he would say that, uh, that don't 
love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. John is saying that, that you and I as Christians, as we're told in Scripture, that we're in the world, but we're not to have a love for the world. It doesn't mean that we don't love those in the world. We are to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So John is not telling us we should hate those people in the world, but what he's telling us that we should hate the world system. That the worldly system that takes us away from God, that is deceptive, that the lust of the eyes and, and of the flesh and the pride of life that leads us to being prideful, we're to hate those things and to understand that this world is going to come to an end. It is. This world is not our hope. Now, that doesn't mean as you and I as Christians that we, as we're in the world, that we just roll up in a ball and we quit. It means that, that we have jobs. It means that we can have businesses. It means that, that you know, we can enjoy things, but it is not a priority in our lives. Our faith is a priority in walking with Jesus Christ. And to understand that we're to keep our eyes on the things above and not the things of this world. And this world is not our hope. This world is not going to get better. It's going to come to a drastic end as you do read the book of Revelation. So you see that religious Babylon, that it's going to be destroyed during that time of the tribulation period and understand that I think one of the major signs showing us that we're in the last days is we're seeing a falling away of truth in the church, even as Paul would say to Timothy, in the last days it will be perilous times. And we've gone over 2 Timothy chapter 3. We also know that he wrote to Timothy in that first letter that Timothy know that in the last days that uh, there are going to be those who are going to fall away from the faith, given ears to doctrines of demons, to fables, and to myths. And we know that that is happening today, even as we see it getting worse and worse, the deception that is in the church. And in the tribulation period, there's going to be a false world church on the scene that first is going to be supported by the Antichrist. And understand this, that this world, this this, that speaks of Babylon, the worldly system, that Satan, that he is the God, little g, of this world, the scripture says. That he's the prince of the power of the air. Now, sometimes those who don't know the Bible or those, you know, out in the world, they say, really, do you really believe in Satan and, and you know, demons and all of that? There's a spiritual dimension out there that we don't fully understand. But we do know that Satan is real. And we do know that he influences this world in a way of trying to, to, you know, he blinds those, as Paul says, that are not of faith. He hardens hearts. He's all behind this Babylonian system. And it's interesting that it's even as you go to the book of Revelation and it talks about Babylon and Euphrates, that it speaks of the demonic dimension that is there. In the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, you remember that Daniel was praying and Gabriel comes to him, the, the archangel, and says that Daniel, that I know you've been praying for a week. I wanted to come to you, but I ended up you know, in this battle against the prince of Persia. 
speaking of this demonic force. So as even as Paul, she start putting the scripture together, Ephesians chapter 6 says, put on the whole armor of God. Our battle isn't with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, that there is a demonic force that is out there that is very organized, principalities and powers. And we see that there seems to be demons even over countries, the prince of of Persia. And then he says, I'm going to have to do battle with the prince of Greece. We know that what is interesting, when we go into Ezekiel chapter 38, do we see that same phraseology, Gog and Magog, of the prince of Rush in, in the land of Magog. And some Bible scholars have suggested, could it be that it's more than just a title of a man but it could be a demonic force that is over that nation that, as we see, that God is going to put a hook in their jaws and bring them down into Israel. We'll talk more about that. But here's the thing that we need to understand. It's more than just a geopolitical situation that has taken place. There is a spiritual dimension that is behind it. And I think that a lot of us would agree that even as we look at World War II with Nazi Germany and Hitler, that they were under demonic forces trying to kill the Jews. Six million Jews. And if some of us have that have gone to Israel, but, but going through the Holocaust Museum, you see that very, very clearly. I remember that one film that I saw, you go through it and there's so much to see. I've been through it about six times and you still can't take it all in. But at one time seeing these huge crowds of, you know, that Hitler is addressing and he was coming up these steps and people were just falling at his feet. Like, you know, it was so weird to see that. We know that there's going to be the Antichrist that will rise up in the last days. He's going to support the woman there, the false church of Revelation chapter 17. And then he will turn and destroy that false religious system because he alone wants to be worshipped. And we're going to see that here if I get going here in this chapter. So, but this is, this is important for us to understand that I think that as we go through this, because in verse 17 of chapter 13, as we talked about, behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. In other words, that as we read Daniel chapter 5, that here's Belshazzar having a party for his lords, and he's toasting to the gods of Babylon, and all of a sudden the true and living God, there's a hand that writes this message behind him, mini, mini, tekel, euphorsis, some ancient Jewish uh, references say that it was written backwards and upside down. So that the wise men, they couldn't, they couldn't understand it. They couldn't uh, interpret it. Uh, the, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. But Daniel came in and he said, this is the interpretation that Belshazzar, you're found in the balances and found wanting. And you're going to be killed tonight in your kingdom given to the Medes and the Persians. Now when that happened, they came in as they went under, they deflected Cyrus, the flow of the Euphrates rivers. They went under that huge wall, came into the city and took the city without destroying it. We know that the prophecies here, as you go to verse 19, that uh, the Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans, again this is chapter 13, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now we know from Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed utterly by fire and brimstone. Jeremiah says the same thing when you read those chapters of 50 and 51. 
So there are those who come along, and they said one of the signs that we need to see pointing to the soon return of Jesus Christ is that the ancient city of Babylon is going to be rebuilt. As a matter of fact, in the 1980s, Saddam Hussein began to restore some of those um, buildings there in Babylon, and all of a sudden the books came out, and people were getting excited. He's re, you know, building the ancient city of Babylon, so fulfillment of prophecy well, it really wasn't. It, it was more of just restoring some of um, Nebuchadnezzar's palace and a few other projects that really never went anywhere. But as we read in chapter 18 of the book of Revelation, commercial Babylon is going to be destroyed in one hour. And I think that's what this is talking about. That commercial Babylon, the commercial system, is going to come to an end and it's going to be destroyed, and then God's going to establish his kingdom, all right? So that's my opinion on that. There are very good Bible teachers that say Babylon has to be rebuilt. I don't necessarily hold to that. I think that it's talking about the Babylonian system, the worldly system, that's going to come to an end. The religious system that has brought in false doctrine and teaching and false religion, and then also the commercial Babylon. Uh, as you read that chapter, you see those who live for the world and live for themselves and luxury and all of that will come to an end. But let's go into chapter 14. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. And then the people will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord and they will take them captive whose captives they were and rule over their oppressors. So the Jews would come back from their captivity from Babylon after 70 years. Cyrus, the king of Babylon, Daniel ends up becoming the right-hand man there in the, the Medes and the Persians. They combined together as they took over Babylon in 536 B.C., the decree comes out that the Jews could go back and rebuild the temple. So just as there was three waves of captivity, right? Don't mean to bore you, but there's going to be a quiz uh, after the church, okay? 605 B.C., Daniel's taken off. 597, Ezekiel's taken away. 586, the temple destroyed. 536, after 70 years... All of a sudden, here comes Zerubbabel and Joshua and about 50,000 Jews that come back to Jerusalem that laid in rubble. And they were given permission to rebuild the temple. And even though they would go through the struggles and everything, eventually the temple, which was a very modest second temple built there, uh, would stand and it would be dedicated to the Lord. About 80 years after that, the second wave of return with only about 1,500 people under Ezra the priest, Ezra probably wasn't even alive when Zerubbabel and Joshua came back. But Ezra the priest came back. He's exhorting the people to turn back to the Lord and forsake those pagan influences again because the people that were there really hassled the Jews. And there, again, there was this influence that was there with the Jews. And they uh, were, you know, uh, adopting some of those pagan practices again. So Ezra comes along. And then in 445 B.C., Nehemiah comes along as he's given by Artaxerxes uh, the permission to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and the streets again, which is very significant when it comes to Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel, that prophecy that we've talked about. So there's three waves that come back. 
when you go through the Bible, you see that there was actually four exodus that are spoken of. When the Jews came out of Egypt, right, and they came into the promised land, that's number one. During this time, when they come back from the Babylonian captivity, that's number two. And then, as Jesus said, even as we read in Luke chapter 21, that he said, you guys are going to be destroyed, Jerusalem, and you're going to be taken captive throughout the nations. And that happened in 70 AD, as here comes Titus Vespasian and the Roman legions, and they surround Jerusalem, destroyed the second temple in Jerusalem, and the Jews are taken off into captivity, and they're dispersed for nearly 2,000 years. And then in 1948, after World War II, after they began to realize the atrocities of the Holocaust and how bad it was and that millions of Jews, six million Jews, were exterminated by Hitler. And they began to get on boats and come back to Israel, to their original homeland. And then the mandate came out that, you know, Israel could become a country and, and the United Nations voted on it. And then in May 1948, Israel became a nation once again. And so since that time, we have seen that third exodus, the Jews have been pouring into Israel. And this is very significant. I know it's a little bit of a history lesson. But it's important for us to understand end-time prophecy. That the Lord said that there would be a literal, national, you know, Israel that will be in place. And we saw that happen in 1948. And as they have come back into the land, the Jews have been pouring back into the land ever since then. To where I believe it was 2010 was the first time in over 2,000 years that there are more Jews in Israel than in any other country. Like 3.6 million Jews in 2010 versus 3.4 in the United States, million Jews. So you see there, those of you who have gone to Israel with us, you see Jews from Ethiopia, from Africa. You see them from South America, from Europe, from Russia, from North America. And if you are Jewish, you can go to Israel and become a citizen. You automatically become a citizen, and, and they will help you. And that's why there are those who are coming into Israel. If you're young enough, you have to go in the military. But you can't become a citizen. So that has been happening, and it continues to happen. And then the fourth, there's going to be the ultimate fulfillment when we see in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus says that they will be gathered from the four corners of the earth, and Israel's going to be restored, and God's going to judge the nations when he establishes his kingdom. So again, it's important for us to understand these things, that God has a plan for Israel. We'll talk more about it. We see that very clearly in the scriptures, and um, it continues to work in Israel. So here it says that the strangers, notice in verse 1, will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Now here's the thing. Isaiah, as I told you, we got to kind of sort all this out, and that's why I'm kind of taking my time going through it, because Isaiah will talk about a near fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment. He talks about a near fulfillment, just as we read in uh, chapter 13, that I will stir up the Medes against them, the Medes and the Persians. That was a near fulfillment. But then he talks about uh, a future fulfillment, an ultimate fulfillment, that is mingled in here. So that's what we're sorting out here. And when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, 
the Gentiles that were around, those who hassled them, they weren't joined to them. So this is talking about the time, the ultimate fulfillment when the Lord will restore the nation of Israel. And again, verse 2, the people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. And will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. In verse 3, shall come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear in the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up his proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has seized the golden city sees the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked the scepter of the rulers he who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders verse 7 notice the whole earth is at rest and quiet they break forth into singing Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up uh, against us. So as we look at this, it would be Belshazzar that was taken over. Babylon had oppressed you know, the known world in northern Africa and all of the Middle East there. But here we, we're going to see that Isaiah is speaking about something much larger than the king of Babylon that ruled 2,600 years ago. That we see once again Babylon, this worldly system, being ruled by a king that is Satan. And it speaks, I believe, in this chapter of Satan and how he falls. Let's continue in verse 9. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nation, and they all shall speak and say to you, Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your string instruments, verse 11, the maggot is spread under you and the worms cover you. So here, as we look at this, that it's not just dealing with the king of Babylon, that is Belshazzar, but the whole earth in verse 7 is speaking about Satan and that Babylon is going to be destroyed. Revelation chapters, what, 17 and 18, right? And, and Satan is going to be bound. Matter of fact, that it tells us that the second coming of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19, that the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be cast into the lake of the fire at that time. Satan is going to be thrown into a bottomless pit. And there the Lord will establish his kingdom. And as Isaiah, as we're going to read, that righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. Truth will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. And, and or cover the earth as, as the seas cover the earth. And we know that the nations are going to be ruled over by Jesus. It's going to be a wonderful time. We have already seen the prophecies of Isaiah that there'll be no more war, that it will be that the lion will lay down with the lamb, right? And a child will play with the cobra and not be hurt, you know? And we, we long for that when the Lord comes and establishes his kingdom. But here's the thing. When you go into Revelation chapter 20, it tells us that at the end of the millennium reign that Satan is let out 
It's that third great war that is spoken of, Gog and Magog, which is not Ezekiel 38 and 39, and we'll discuss that again on New Year's Eve just very quickly. But here Satan is let out, and there's going to be a huge number of people that are going to rebel with Satan against God. And, you know, God's just going to speak and do them in. But I think it really shows the hardness of man's heart. And here's this utopia the kingdom of God and no wars and, and, and righteousness and truth and how glorious and wonderful and Jesus ruling from Jerusalem and people are going to choose to side with Satan that it tells us a great multitude. So it just describes the hardness of people desiring to want to rebel against the Lord and then Satan at that time will be cast in the lake of fire then the great white throne judgment is going to take place and those who have rejected Jesus Christ will be cast into the lake of fire. Heavy stuff that is told to us in the scriptures, but we need to understand that this is God's word and it is going to come to pass these things. And Satan is going to be bound up, but right now he is the prince of the power of the air. Jesus said he's a destroyer and that he's a liar. And he's getting involved in his principalities and powers and lives of people, pulling them away from the Lord. But listen, Christian, he wants to make you ineffective in your walk. You see, in that spiritual warfare that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. But we do know that the enemy is going to do everything he can to make you ineffective in your witness, to get your eyes off the Lord. He's going to come at your marriage. He's going to come at your kids. He's going to come at this church. We need to be praying for Calvary Chapel Greeley because I know that he's really upset with us, Satan is. As long as we keep our eyes on the Lord and proclaim the gospel and people are getting saved and, and the radio program's going forth and we're reaching out to this community, he's going to come at us and especially in the day in which we were living in. So here, to follow the king of Babylon is more than Belshazzar is speaking out about Satan. And in, in verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you're cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. So you see these five eyes here. Here is Lucifer's son of the morning that is described to us. And there's debate whether Lucifer is a title or a name. Lucifer means day star. And we know that Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church, that he said that Satan transforms himself as an angel of light. And we need to remember that. And that's why the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, listen, again, end time prophecy, it seems like ever since, you know, after Ronald Reagan, that the new president comes and everybody says, is he the Antichrist, you know? Um, is, is Clinton the Antichrist? Is Obama the Antichrist? Trump is the Antichrist. And now even those who are saying Trump is the one that's bringing this covenant that's going to be made with Israel and you need to watch it and he's the Antichrist and all this baloney. Listen, the Antichrist is going to be brilliant. We don't have that right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
He's going to be brilliant. He is. He's going to be brilliant. The world's going to look at him and say, wow. He's a great orator. He's going to have the answers to the world's problems. There's no way that he can be evil or dark or deceptive. And that's the way the world's going to look at him. And I want to get my point across because even those of faith, Jesus said, can be deceived. And you see, people of faith are being deceived even today into believing things that that really are not of God and deception. And then when the Antichrist comes on the scene, and you and I, I believe, will be raptured before that happens, we're to be looking for Jesus Christ, not for the Antichrist, that the whole world's going to be deceived into following him and to worship him. The world breaks out in satanic worship. And it isn't that he's dark and, you know, he's got beady eyes and horns sticking out of his head. He's going to come and seem like an angel of light. This, this, this guy's like a Messiah. And he's going to claim to be God, to be worshipped as God in the temple of God, as, as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says. But here the fall of Lucifer, and we go to Ezekiel. It's interesting. Ezekiel, I'll read it to you. You can look it up later. But Ezekiel chapter 28 when talking about the king of Tyre, is also speaking about Satan. Let me read it to you. That you were a seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in the Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, oxy, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers I establish you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Remember this as Satan is a created being. He's not the opposite equal of God. Isn't this warring that's going on, you know, back and forth. And he's a created being. And Jesus, you recall in our Luke study, that remember the 70 came back? And they came back. They were sent out by Jesus. They come back, and they're saying, man, we worked miracles. We we healed people, and people were, you know, that uh, were freed from demons, and we even raised the dead. And what was Jesus' response? He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. And when you first read that, you think, huh? Why did he say that? And I think there's a very important reason for that. And I think there's a very important consideration for us in this that, I, that we can end with this and we'll pick it up next year, okay, in chapter 14. Satan said, I will, I will, five times. I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights. I will be like the most high. Ezekiel tells us that there he is in the Garden of Eden. I find that to be very fascinating. Could it be that there he is? He seems to be a worship leader. We saw uh, in the previous uh, verse in um, verse 11, the sound of your string instruments, that Ezekiel 28 indicates to us he was a worship leader, that there he is, the seal of perfection in the garden. And could it be that as God is walking with Adam in the cool of the day? You see, some people think that God created Adam and Eve, and then 10 minutes later, he came Satan to deceive Eve. That God could have walked with, with Adam and, and Eve for years. 
And there is Satan there in the garden, a seal of perfection. And he's like, what about me? I want to be noticed. I want to be worshipped. And that's something that we see that Satan has always wanted. He's always wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be like the Most High, to set his throne above the stars of God and the mount of the congregation, pride. And it tells us about how pride is such a terrible, terrible sin. And I think that Jesus was saying to those disciples that came back, man, we were working miracles and freeing demoniacs and raising the dead and and mighty miracles, Jesus said, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. And he's saying, be careful of pride. And I think that is a word for any of us who are ministering, and I think that's a word for our church. As we give thanks to the Lord for great things that he is doing here and how he is working at Calvary Chapel, I think two ends of the spectrum that we need to be careful of. One is that we don't just go into complacency. Folks, I think a great danger for us is that we become complacent, and this is the way it is, and we become comfortable where we're not really desiring to expect the Lord to work even more. And really praying and really about the things of the Lord, we become very complacent. And it's easy for me. This is the word for me, not just for, for you, but for all of us. But the other side of the spectrum, too, is to become prideful. Begin to elevate ourselves. Begin to elevate this ministry. And I hope and pray that you and I, that we remain humble, keeping our eyes on the Lord, just being where he wants us to be, and that we would be a blessing to this community that we wouldn't see ourselves as better as anybody else or any other church or any other Christian or, and to have a heart for the lost. To have a heart for those who are lost. Because this is real what we talked about. And I know I talked about some pretty heavy things tonight. But there is a reality out there that this world is going to come to an end and Satan is eventually going to be defeated. He is defeated for us as Christians, but he's going to be bound up. But there's a lot of people that have been blinded by him. Lives have been destroyed by him. There's a lot of people that have been deceived by him. And we need to be in prayer. And in the darkness out there, we need to bring the light. Amen. And that's my prayer for us. And we do it with truth and we do it with love. Those are our weapons, truth and love. Loving those out there, neighbors and coworkers and family members, those who really get under our skin, those who irritate us, listen, that we would see people that the way the Lord does. And he sees them through the eyes of love and to know that Jesus died for them. Let's not become prideful. If we become prideful, we turn inwardly is what happens. But we boast in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. And to give that message to others. And let's not get complacent. We don't want to get complacent. Not in these days. Because I don't know what the weeks and the months and the years hold in store. But everything is happening to bring a culmination of the return of the Lord. And we're seeing things happen. The days of Ezekiel and the days of Isaiah happening right before our very eyes. And you and I have the privilege to front row seat in all of that. 
We are a generation of Christians that have seen Israel come back and become a nation. And Ezekiel 36 and 37 being fulfilled. And what comes after that? Ezekiel 38 and 39. And we are seeing a nation that is turning further and further away from the Lord. And we need to be praying and to be a light. And how you have influence to the people that are linked to you in your life, I pray that we would be ones that we would lift them up in prayer. Sometimes I forget. Sometimes I forget to pray for family members. Sometimes I get a rotten attitude. I get very negative. You know, we all can fall through that. But to remember this, that Jesus Christ is coming back and Satan is going to be bowed and Babylon's going to be destroyed. And you and I have opportunity right now to be a light to those around us. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for... We didn't get very far, but Lord, a lot of things here that are worth considering. And, and Lord, um, I just pray that tonight would be a reminder for us that there is a Babylonian system that's out there, the world, with all the deception and falseness and, Lord, pursuing worldly things, carnal things, lust, sin, and you are going to judge sin. You're going to come, your son Jesus, just as he came the first time, he's going to come again, and he's going to judge the nations. Satan's going to be bound up. So Lord, there's something in that for us. We are living in the day of grace. And we remember how you loved this world not the worldly system that takes us away from you, but you love those in the world. So much so that you sent your son to come and die for all of us and take upon the sins of the world. So we give a message to those that Jesus loves you and he is your hope and salvation. It's not found anywhere else. And what makes Christianity unique is only Jesus Christ died for you He's the one that bears those marks of the holes in his hands and in his feet and the scars of going through the suffering because he proved his love for you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he's calling you to himself. He's saying, I am your hope. And I've come to give you life and life abundantly, a life of peace and joy and real purpose and fulfillment. It's not found in the world because the world is going to leave you deceived and burdened and you'll end up dying in your heart and in your soul because you were created to worship our Lord. You were created for his good purposes. And he will do more with your life than you could ever do on your own. He wants to save you, forgive you, and give you a new beginning. A new heart. And for you to belong to a kingdom that will be established forever. That means anything to anyone here tonight. He says, come. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, realizing that you need to be forgiven. You can't save yourself. No one else will save you. A church can't save you. It's coming and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you and dying for your sins because our sins have separated us from God. To be forgiven, to have the hope of heaven, 
right relationship with the Father and to know that he's alive because what makes Christianity unique is there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem and every other religious leader is still in the grave. Only Jesus conquered sin and death and proved that he's the Son of God. If he's speaking to your heart, will you give your life to him, your heart to him? You pray, Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. Forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for me and you rose again and you're speaking to my heart and I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know you and walk with you. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for dying for me and forgiving me. I put my trust in you now. In Jesus' name. And if that, if anyone prayed that prayer, I'm going to just kind of hang out here when we're dismissed. And I want you to come up and tell me the decision that you made. I want to encourage you and pray with you in any way that I can. And Lord, I thank you again for all the things that you have done here. May we keep our eyes on you, humbled before you, doing the work of the kingdom through prayer and support and serving you encouraging one another and Lord may you use this church mightily in the new year to be a light to this community to Weld County to, to Colorado the front range and even parts of this country and world as we just spread the gospel wherever we can and whenever we can doing it with gladness of heart and great joy I pray you bless everyone's Christmas that we will rejoice in you. Looking forward to the services this weekend and as we enter into a new year. Keep us safe. And Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.